Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek. I am joined, as always, by my friend and comrade Danny Bessner. And we are very grateful and lucky to be uh, joined by Joshua Craze, a uh, writer and researcher who has worked on Sudan for the last decade. He's going to help us uh, understand a little bit uh, about what's going on in Sudan right now and how things came to uh, be uh, where they are with the military and the rapid support forces battling one another. Uh, Joshua, thank you so much for coming on the program. Pleasure to be here. Before we get into uh, kind of talking about who the players are here, can you give people sort of, uh, admittedly, we're, this is not a time-sensitive format podcasting, but uh, we're recording this on April 28th, Friday. Uh, where do things stand right now in terms of this conflict? So about two weeks ago, on the 15th of April, a conflict broke out between SAF, which is the Sudan Armed Forces, led by a man called General Burhan, and the Rapid Support Forces, which are a paramilitary organization, led by a man called General uh, Dagalo or Hemeti, Little Mohammed, as he's otherwise known. And we've seen two weeks of pretty pitch fighting in Khartoum, that's Sudan's capital. At the moment, the RSF seem to have the upper hand in the capital, and we've seen conflict break out in other areas of the country, especially in Darfur, which is where Hemeti is from. So let's talk, I don't, we can go back, I guess, to the, the 2019 removal of Omar al-Bashir. I know we don't want to delve too deeply into the history here and get, get off track, but uh, talk about the players here. Burhan, the commander of the, the Sudanese military, uh, Dagalo, uh, you know, maybe that needs a little more explanation of who the RSF, what the RSF is and how he uh, uh, came to emerge from it. But, but give people a sense of, of who we're talking about. So the sort of the eagle's view of history in two minutes is that for 20 years, Sudan was ruled by a man called Omar al-Bashir, who was ruling with the Islamists. And what he did to coup-proof his regime is build up a series of different security services. And each of them were rivals of each other, and they each had pretty extensive economic empires. So the army itself, when you go to Khartoum, you'll see it has banks, real estate, um, construction companies. And what Bashir did effectively is privatize the state, a bit like you know, the Labour government in England during the 1990s, and give it over to these parastatal paramilitary actors. Hemeti comes from Darfur. Darfur is one of the most peripheral regions, most marginalized areas in Sudan, though it has a substantial amount of the country's population. And in 2003, a war breaks out in Darfur. And Bashir, rather than using the army, which is badly paid and kind of resistant to going to suppress that rebellion in Darfur, he effectively outsources the state's monopoly of violence to Hemeti and to a militia called the Janjaweed or the evil horsemen. And Hemeti rapidly rises to be the top of the Janjaweed, partly because he is on the government side, whereas other parts of the Janjaweed are more restive against the government. And then he becomes even more important as a figure when gold is discovered. That happens across the Sahel, as Adam Tooze endlessly wrote about recently, but especially in Darfur. And Hemeti takes hold of that gold mining operation and uses that to become one of the major sort of uh, warlords in the country. So you have, on the one hand, the army under Burhan, which is pretty hostile to Hemeti. He's an interloper. He's an outsider. He's not from one of the riverine families around Khartoum, along the Nile, from which the Sudan, Sudanese political elite traditionally come from. There's a sort of, there's a deep racism 
against Hemeti, even though Hemeti is himself an Arab, but from a group that's both in Chad and in Darfur. And there's a deep resentment because what he's doing is challenging the military's control of an economic empire based in Khartoum. So how long, take us back, how long have these group, have these two uh, been at odds with one another and, and why, how were they able to kind of put that at least uh, sweep it maybe under the rug uh, to function as the number one and number two figures in the coup, the, the military hunter that's replaced Bashir? So initially they were kept, they were at odds but kept together by Bashir. When there are massive protests against Bashir in 2018 and 2019, partly because he's cut and Bashir cut um, the subsidies on wheat and fuel that was sort of his contract with the Sudanese middle class, these two figures both throw Hemeti under the bus. The armed forces and the RSF think in order to preserve their economic empire, what they need to do is get rid of the leading figure. So there's a basic sort of opposition here in, politi- in Sudanese politics between the military and the civilians. And the army thinks we, you know, we turn Bashir into a scapegoat and we stay together. And so they then, as they were pushed by the international community and by Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, who are the two most important diplomatic players in Sudan, into an agreement with the civilians in August 2019. And then both, both uh, Hemeti and Burhan sort of tried to um, keep the military strength, both militarily and economically, against the civilian government leading up to when that military control is really threatened, a coup that happens in October 2021, and see Burhan and Hemeti install themselves as the head of a military junta. Since that coup, uh, how what has their relationship been like? I, I mean, you're, you've talked about some deep... Um, incompatibilities here, but but they, their relationship has certainly broken down. What have been the factors that have uh, caused this? Was, it, was this always going to end up with the two of them at odds with one another, or what's been introduced uh, since the coup that's, that's kind of made, them, made it impossible for them to coexist? I mean, I think that structurally they were always opposed, and if you're a cynic, you would say that it was a matter of when rather than if they would fight, and that's been the case since they were built up as two major forces. Maybe there was some long drawn out diplomatic process that would have avoided this um, fight, but it was definitely there structurally. What it is true to say, however, is that the reason that they're fighting now is because of the diplomatic process itself. And so the coup from October 2021 through October 2022 last year was failing. It failed economically. They were desperately looking for a civilian head. No one wanted to like be the head of the military junta. And it's important to understand that neither the army nor the RSF have any real social base. Unlike Bashir, who at least had Islamism and had a relationship to the sort of the Islamist groups in Sudan, neither figure really is, has any popularity at all. They're sort of metastasied security services, a result of Bashir's form of politics. But neither man is a popular politician. Definitely not Burhan and not really um, uh, Hemeti, though he's tried to make moves towards becoming, becoming a politician. So what happened uh, was that they were then forced back to the negotiating table, partly by America in December 2022, so last December, and they signed a framework agreement. This framework agreement brought back, supposedly, or announced the beginning of the bringing back of a civilian government to come. But all the difficult issues were pushed down the line to a phase two that was both totally um, un- in- unrealistic and also incredibly vague, but that was supposed to resolve the question of the security sector within one month, as if like a magic wand could be waved. 
And by the end of Ramadan, somehow he would have a new government. And the reason for that is that the timelines and the intentions of the international diplomats are never those of their Sudanese partners. What they want is before their short sort of term is up at State Department to have a certificate on their wall saying, look, great, we have solved the Sudanese peace process. What then happened is they had a month to resolve security sector reform. What security sector reform? Should the RSF be resolved, like absorbed into the army? And on this initially, um, Hemeti said he wanted 22 years for this to happen and Burhan wanted two. So you can see already like this was the precipitating force that really pushed them together. Because if Hemeti knows, if he's just, if all his men are absorbed into the army, he loses control of the gold mines, he loses control of the military sector, and he's lost. He has no, he, there's no more chance of Hemeti becoming president, which is what he's always wanted. You alluded to this, but I'd like to, to go a little further into it. Uh, it, it. There seems like, it seems like you've got two military forces that have pretty much no base of, of public support, and the, the Sudanese people are just kind of stuck watching these these two forces kind of duke it out on their streets uh and you know obviously are being you know their lives are in danger because of it um can you talk a little bit more about how much or how little popular support there is for either of these sides and and what that dynamic looks like i mean i, I think on, on the one hand it's maybe kept this from becoming a full-blown civil war but on the other hand it's just the sudanese people seem like they are literally observers in in their own country being taken apart by groups that they don't support right it's been marked how little support there's been explicit support certainly from not just any of the civilian political parties or from the resistance committees the non-hierarchically organized lejan the street committees that really led the revolution against bashir or even from the armed rebel groups right which came into the government in 2019 in a different peace agreement that there's almost no um political support for either man of course both you know people join the army and people join the rsf because in a country in which um largely neoliberal reforms enacted by the prior civilian government have brought the economy uh, really you know to its knees people join the army but there's no real support for the army i think the danger of this war and one it could become a civil war is if both parties tried to expand their base by sort of intensifying already existing social cleavages within the society. And we've already seen some of that in Darfur, where the Masalit, which is one of the non-Arab groups, have been arming themselves and fighting with the military against Arab groups who have been taken to be aligned to the RSF. And there are these sort of splits happening or could potentially happen in places like Blue Nile or in South Kordofan, which are some of the other peripheral areas inside Sudan. So it's it's not even in those cases that they would be popular, but that what they would do was sort of instrumentalize already existing antagonisms, and that would set the country on the path to a really serious civil war, I think. Joshua, maybe you could place what's going on there in a regional context. Uh, how does what's going on in Sudan reflect the larger region? How have people been responding geopolitically? Sure. So the major backer of the SAF, the Sudanese army, is the Egyptian army and the Egyptian state, which... You know, the Sudanese army was trained by the Egyptian army, sees itself on the basis of the Egyptian army, and in some respects has copied the sort of the military economic model of that army. And the the Egyptians are absolutely hostile to Hemeti, an interloper, a militia man, a warlord. They do not want to see him running. They really imagine a sort of Burhan 
um, Sudanese government, and they've been supporting minimally uh, the Sudanese army with both fighter planes and with um, advice and uh, intelligence. So Hemeti has been backed for a long time by the United Arab Emirates. That's partly because he sent out mercenaries to Libya and to Yemen from his RSF, which is the paramilitary force he controls, on the Emirati payroll. Also, a lot of the gold mines that he controls, all of that gold goes directly to Dubai. So they have an interest in both the gold, the paramilitary mercenaries, and in ports along the Red Sea. And they've been backing Hemeti. In this war, they've also been supporting uh, Burhan to some degree. So they're trying to play both sides at the moment until we see, or until they see who has the upper hand. Both South Sudan and Ethiopia have also been playing both sides and taken a step back from explicitly supporting either man. So there's a there's a possibility for a really regional war to happen in Sudan, but so far that hasn't happened. The real uh, political cleavage has been uh, between Egypt and SAF and Hemeti and the reluctance of much of the region to see a non-state actor from Darfur, this sort of peripheral Bonapartian figure, come and install himself in the government. Joshua, can you uh, look at this to look at this question from the other side, um, not just uh, the regional players that are getting involved or, uh, you know, how they're getting involved in the conflict, but what this conflict could do regionally if it does start to spill out. Uh, we're, we're seeing refugees, obviously, into Egypt, South Sudan, uh, Chad. Uh, there's been some uh, there's a relationship between, uh, I gather, the, the RSF and uh, Khalifa Haftar's. Libyan National Army. Um, where are some of the places that this this could go if it does start to expand out of out of Sudan? And and why would that? You know, what are some of the reasons that might happen? So Haftar has, according to the Americans, though I haven't got independent confirmation of this, supplied weapons to Hemeti, um, and that's via that's the UAE. And the UAE, if they do come to increasingly back Hemeti, will probably use Haftar as their proxy. I mean, in terms of regional spillover, the Sudanese state has long used militia forces in South Sudan to fight its wars, just as it has done in Darfur and elsewhere in Sudan. So there's an immediate question of the possibility of spillover into South Sudan. Um, there's extant tensions between Ethiopia and Sudan on their border, which Ethiopia could then take advantage of. There's tension between Ethiopia and Egypt over an Ethiopian dam that Egypt fears will dam the Nile and thus disrupt much-needed um, water supplies for their agriculture. So there's all sorts of moments in which sort of already existing antagonisms in the region could use this both as a as a sink, as it were, but also a spur to those conflicts. And let's go a little bit wider and talk about the uh, more distant international players here, uh, the U.S. and Russia, and the two that have been talked about. And and I know you've you've already talked about uh, sort of some failures in the, the international community's response to the coup in, in 2021. Uh, but, um, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that and about whether there's, uh, you know, the U.S. is backing a horse here, Russia is backing a horse here. We've seen, I think, a lot of uh, heated reporting in the U.S. about uh, Russia and the RSF, but I'm, I'm not sure that's uh, that may be overblown given other, you know, other things that are going on in the world, obviously. So can you talk a little bit about that aspect of things? Yeah, so Russia first, because it's easier. I mean, everyone is obsessed with Wagner, obviously, and look to Wagner wherever they are. It's true that Wagner was with the RSF running some 
gold mines. Um, but the Irish have, the, the, the Wagner have not been involved in this war. Reportedly, they've offered surface to air missiles to Hemeti, but he's held back. And I think if you look at Wagner's operations in Gar or in Mali, they have to wait for an invitation, effectively, to sort of sink their teeth into the extractive industries of a given state. So Russia's role is overblown, and Hemeti is pretty um, sceptical of taking on uh, Wagner's support, precisely because he's been trying to position himself as the statesman of the future and closer to the civilian political parties than Burhan has been. And one of the things that really did it for Hemeti during the coup period was that he turned up in Russia trying to get Russian support over Burhan on the day, of course, that Russia invades Ukraine. Burhan thought this was a wonderful example of Hemeti shooting himself in the face and sort of immediately becoming person non grata to the Western political class. So Hemeti was burned by that and is cautious about making that mistake again. I think the situation of America is more difficult. I think the, during the revolution in 2019, America was pretty slow to take a stance. And since then, its, sort of, its version of political realism has been there must be an accommodation with the military. Um, Burhan is non-Islamist, so we're willing to talk to him. And we need to have a civilian transition. And they sort of came in with implementation matrices. And the civilian government, I think, that came in with international backing in August 2019 was a disaster for many reasons. But one of the reasons it was a disaster is that its whole program was effectively orientated towards the international community. It was done for international consumption. So it focused on the relief of Sudan's debt, the cutting of subsidies. And what that did was create an economic disaster, really, or contributed to an economic disaster in Sudan, which saw the civilian government becoming increasingly unpopular. What the Americans didn't do is engage in any way with the actual resistance committees that brought down Bashir. So for four years, there's been a total marginalization of the one genuinely democratic force in the country because they were supposedly leaderless. Their socioeconomic agenda did not back the sort of the IMF and World Bank apparatchiks that the Americans sent into Khartoum. And so that force really was, um, those, those, those resistance committees were really marginalized in the story for the last four years, even after the coup has been, there has to be the military in charge. So all of the sort of the, the spirit and the possibility and the push, which was really in 2019 to have a non-military government to get rid of the security services, was largely dissipated. And that dissipation was largely at the hands of the international community's intervention, which had a version of realism that said, what we need to do is have a civilian military government. And so for the last four years, there's been no sanctions on the military. There's been no real push for them to give up any of their economic empire. It's been the case that they've taken the military at their word, even though repeatedly, you know, there's been a coup, for instance, and that coup occurred uh, the day after the U.S. envoy left and Burhan looked him in the face and said, there will be no coup. And then there was a coup. Maybe this is a natural place to talk about the U.S. interest in Sudan. I mean, so the U.S. interest in Sudan has been for a long time, for a long time, was the war on terror. And what pushed South Sudan into independence in 2011 was really a peace process that began because Bashir at that time looked across at Afghanistan and went, oh, this might be happen. This might happen to me. Because as we know, in the 1990s, um, Osama bin Laden was living in Sudan. He'd taken up uh, refuge there. There was an extant pretty radical political Islamist party ruling with Bashir that Bashir then sidelines. 
So that was really the American interest for a long time was making sure that there was no sort of entre guillemets like radical um, Islamism. There, Salah Ghosh, the head of intelligence for Bashir, had a long relationship with the CIA. Since the revolution, that's become less interesting than two things. One is a program of economic um, austerity that we need to bring Sudan back within the the, the ranks of well-behaving economic states. And it's really been a sort of rerun of 1990s sort of end of history platitudes about what economic liberalism can do. And the other, even more fundamentally, is regional realignment. So one of the costs of American funding for Sudan during that one, those, uh, that one year of, of civilian, two years of civilian government was uh, a peace process and a recognition of Israel. So the U.S.'s interest has been to have this, you know, one of Africa's largest countries on the Red Sea, south of Egypt, um, a pretty major player regionally, a uh, country that has oil. So there's not unimportant, um, you know, in the region and in the sort of the, the American geopolitical imagination of the region to bring it into region, real, regional realignment, stability with Israel, a stable government and a sort of a, a doctrine of economic liberalism enacted by the World Bank and the IMF. So, Joshua, let's... Um with the time we have left, um, talk a little bit about how the conflict has gone and how it may go. You mentioned uh, that the RSF seems to have an edge uh, so far over the military in terms of fighting in Khartoum. I'm I'm curious, given that the, the military, at least on paper, seems to have a number of things going for it, particularly, let's say, in the realm of air power, uh, what how has the RSF been able to sustain itself so far, and, and does it have a chance of actually, uh, you know, holding out here and, and uh, you know, winning even, uh, you know, if, if you want to talk about it in those terms, uh, a conflict against the military? So it's interesting. What would constitute winning in this question? Because you're totally right, of course, that the that's um, yeah, that you're right. Yeah. That's that's the kind of the, the core of the, uh, right. the thing, I guess. Right, like militarily, yes, the SAF has air power, um, SAF has artillery, the RSF Hemetis force has much more experience in urban warfare, um, its men are better trained and have much more experience. In Khartoum, as far as I'm aware, it's not actually SAF that's fighting the RSF, it's the operations division of in the intelligence uh, unit, the NSS, that's actually fighting. Um, on the other hand, what does that mean? Like, even if they took Khartoum, the problem is that they're not going to control large parts of the country in which they don't have any sort of backing or any legitimacy, certainly in the east of the country, for instance, which is where Port Sudan is, which is the port from which all the oil flows. Um, so what they're hoping for is control of Khartoum, because Khartoum has always been where politics in Sudan is fought and waged and enacted, and then recognition by the civilian parts of the government and the international community. And I think what we've seen already in the response is that there is a great deal of hostility to the RSF because A, they're a non-state force. Um, B, there I think is a great deal of racism, honestly, against Hemeti as this uneducated guy from the periphery. And so really, I think they're in a pretty desperate situation, even if they control Khartoum, because this is an existential battle for Hemeti. There's very little way you can see, there's very little off-ramp for him. There's very little way you can see him coming out of this with anything other than an absolute win or an absolute loss. On the other hand, for the army, even if they defeat um, Hemeti elsewhere, it seems unlikely that they can be able to defeat him in Khartoum without basically leveling the city. 
and that's leveling a city with millions of people in and you know it is really like it, it's it's sort of paris in the 19th century in terms of its absolute centrality to the sudanese state so this the, really neither side has any interest at the moment in negotiations it seems likely that negotiations will at some point happen in juba but one shouldn't which is the capital of south sudan one shouldn't overestimate the degree of sort of hostility and existential risk that both sides feel it seems unlikely that this conflict will either end um via peace but or end militarily and what we'll see instead are a series of different war zones the danger is that in darfur this will become an ethnic war between arab and non-arab groups continuing what has effectively been 20 years of war in darfur in other parts of the country there'll be basically saf controlling the economic centers in the towns but the rsf waging a guerrilla war outside of them and then cartoon uh, cartoon basically absolutely stopping and there being a real humanitarian crisis both there and in the rest of the country uh, i did want to talk a little bit more about darfur and what's been going on there um we have seen as you mentioned earlier a conflict between the masalit and and arab tribes um what i mean that's sort of a <clears throat> steady state as you say over the, the last 20 years uh, and yet we're now in a, at a point where there's not even the, any semblance of security uh, force that can can try to police this. Um, how how have things gone so far in Darfur uh, and how bad do you uh, worry things could get there? I think so initially conflict was very bad in Nyala, which has a lot of the humanitarian agencies based there, a lot of government offices and the RSF basically went through and looted them all. Um, a lot of places, surprisingly, have been pretty peaceful because of the strength of local customary administrations, women's groups, um, and the, the sort of the desire that this doesn't ignite a regional war. But I think the danger is is that the state has never been a neutral presence in Darfur, sort of presiding above the groups. It's always backed Arab populations, and I think one on the one hand you have now a moment of weakness on the part of Hemeti and his Arab groups, such that you have an emergent, you could have an emergent alliance between, for instance, the Masalit and the Sudan Dan forces against Hemeti. On the other hand, even amongst the Arabs in Darfur, one of the dangers is that the army will use this other commander, Musa Hilal, who used to be the head of the Janjaweed, to attack Hemeti's forces in Darfur, creating an inter-Arab war in Darfur, along with a war between the non-Arab groups and the Arab groups. And so you have these sort of layers of conflict as the opposition between these two groups instrumentalizes, instrumentalizes and exacerbating existing ethnic tensions on the ground. The last thing uh, b- before we let you go that I, I wanted to ask about, there's been uh, just in recent days, uh, especially a lot of talk about uh, Omar al-Bashir to kind of bring us bring us back full circle, I guess. A uh, number of people who were close to him and have been imprisoned uh, seem to have miraculously gotten free now. And Bashir's whereabouts himself, uh, while the military says that he was uh, moved out of the prison that he was in in Khartoum, which was attacked, uh, has been attacked, uh, there's been no confirmation of that. And I, I get the sense that there's increasing concern that the Islamists, in particular elements uh, that Bashir cultivated that were an important part of his rule over Sudan could use this conflict now as a way to make a comeback. I I haven't seen much indication that either Burhan or 
uh, Hamidi are, are particularly enamored with the Islamists. I guess Burhan may be a little more amenable uh, as a as an avenue back to power. But do you uh, do you have concerns in this regard? Like, is there a possibility of a resurgence, if not of Bashir himself, of a Bashir-like government, whether it's around Burhan or somebody else, emerging as a sort of uh, end state for this? Yeah, absolutely. I think even if you if you look during the period of the coup, so after October 2021, leading up to this war, Burhan found himself in a very weak position. He's not a government guy. He's a military commander. And he brought back a lot of the ministers who had served under Bashir. Now, as you say, there's been a, a jailbreak, as it were, and Ahmed Haroun and a number of the other um, NCP members have come back. But that's just the latest step in a process in which the Burhan from a position of weakness has brought back more and more of the NCP, um, the sort of the NCP cadres. I think the army itself now is pretty split uh, between a section that really didn't like the NCP and a section that always remained loyal to Bashir. And let's not forget that part has always really blamed Hemeti for during the revolution, throwing Bashir under the bus. And I think the danger of a replacement for Burhan being much, much worse and being drawn from the NCP part of the state is, is real. Um, and I think that's also partly what determines the sort of the existential prospects of the two sides. Like if you killed Hemeti or you got rid of Hemeti, there's no replacing him, really. It's like he runs the RSF like a family business. His deputy is his brother. Burhan, on the other hand, is also fighting an internal war to the army against elements of the NCP that very much want to bring, I wouldn't say the same sort of state back, but uh, the, the same sort of mixture of like neoliberal authoritarianism and militarized security service political economy. Joshua, thank you again for coming on. I know this was short notice, and and um, but we're we're very grateful. Uh, if people want to follow your work uh, or you know follow your your uh, analysis of what's going on, where can they do that? I mean, they could do it at, at joshua-craze.com on Twitter or www.joshuacraze.com. And I just did a piece for New Left Review's sidecar on the situation in Sudan. All right. We'll have uh, links to all of those things in the show description. Again, Joshua Craze, thank you so much. And uh, we will uh, – I say this somewhat morbidly, but I, I think we will probably be having you back to discuss this conflict uh, at some point as it continues. But thank you. Uh, thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Nice talking to you both. Yes. Come, 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 come.